be reading from the New King James Version. Again, it's Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which is created according to God in the true righteousness and holiness. Good morning. It is good to see each of you, and if you are visiting with us again, we welcome you, and we are so glad to have uh, Miss Templeton and Simons or Simmons and also uh, the Mitchells with us. What a joy it is to have uh, more folks that we can gather to worship God with, but then also to serve God with, and let's make sure that each of us, all of us, are doing our part and that we give our very best to God every week and every day of our life. This morning, we have about five families that are in Georgia, Fayetteville, Georgia, and they are meeting with a congregation, which we will be going in just a couple of weeks on our stateside mission trip, and they will be conducting some meetings to help merge the two congregations in a joint venture of going to every door in that community and giving everyone an opportunity to learn of Jesus Christ and what a wonderful endeavor that is. And we appreciate those elders and individuals that are there this morning. And let's make sure that every day from here into that time that we're mindful in our prayers, fervently and sincere in prayer, uh, that God's will be done there and great things will be done as a result of that mission trip. Also, we pray for the safe return of our preteen trip uh, retreat. They have had, I hear, a wonderful weekend together, and they should be home very shortly. Most of us know immediately the term blonde jokes. I don't know if you know that there's been a retaliation, I suppose written by blonde-headed individuals, that they say things like this about men. How many honest, intelligent, caring men in the world does it take to do the dishes? The answer, both of them. What's the difference between men and government bonds? The bonds will eventually mature. How many men does it take to change a roll of toilet paper? We don't know. It's never happened. How do you get a man to do set-ups? You tape a remote between his toes and have him to lie down on the floor. Now, I offer you those not as much as jokes as to think with me for just a moment. And every joke is usually a small measure of truth, and that's what makes it a joke, is that small measure of truth is exaggerated. Why is it that whenever there are jokes about men offering a lack of commitment to a spouse, we laugh because there's a measure of truth in that as we look at manhood. Or if it's the arrogance of men refusing to apologize or to stop and ask directions, we laugh because there's a measure of truth in that. Why is it when we hear a joke that, that brings out or reveals the fact that men have a very difficult time being good communicators? We find humor in that because most of us know that there is a level or degree of truth in that. 
And then think with me for just a moment. Not that Hollywood has observed correctly, but it's interesting to simply observe what Hollywood has observed. In the last decade, the television shows that show men, how are they portrayed? How many shows can you name right now that are modern-day sitcoms or modern-day shows, and they show a man that is a father, and that he's married to one woman, and that he's been a good husband and a good father all of his life, and that he's an honest worker and does well at work? It's hard to think of many, isn't it? Because even the ones that do portray the man as a husband and a father, he's generally a loser. He's usually the laughing stock of his family. He's the one that everybody in the family, including the kids, have to tell him how to think and how to feel and how to react. And isn't it interesting that it just might be a level of truth in that that makes people want to watch those sitcoms. And the idea that a strong man that has his life all together He's a man that's totally invested in his workplace, and he's generally not married, and oftentimes living with a woman. Is that a strong man in America today? Is it possible to be a faithful husband, a godly and responsible parent, very active in the work of the Lord, committed at the workplace and having achievements in the workplace. I just wonder, and perhaps if my memory serves me best, we'll close with this very same illustration this morning. I just wonder if the reason that Hollywood has stopped portraying that is it that they believe that no man is that strong anymore. I used to think they just wanted to make a mockery of manhood. But I wonder now. Maybe the thought outside the church in America today is the thought that there's no man strong enough to be committed to one woman all of his life. He just doesn't have that level of commitment. It's impossible. There's no man that would be committed to his children all the days of his life. There's no man that strong. There's no man that has a heart that would say, instead of arrogant self, I'll submit myself to an almighty God and I'll gladly worship God on Sunday. I'll gladly live my life in service to God Monday through Saturday. I'll gladly give my life to God. This morning, I want to ask you, will you study along with me using the very same text as last week and looking in principle at the three same points as last week? Except this week we'll look at them as a godly view of relationships, looking in manhood, and last week, of course, looking from the aspect of the woman. As we think about Ephesians, the fourth chapter here, let's develop again this point number one of responsibility. Every man is responsible for his choices. In other words, putting it in the words of Bud Lambert, he would say this, we are where we are in life because of the choices we have made. No man can say, well, they're the ones that made me think this way. They're the ones that made me react this way. They're the ones that made me feel this way. No, no, no. Your wife doesn't do that. Your children doesn't do that. Your co-workers don't do that. Your neighbors don't do that. Your peers don't do that. Your government doesn't do that. We decide... 
Every man here this morning has decided how to react when someone acts. Every man here this morning has decided what to think when someone does something. If we say, I just don't feel that love anymore for my spouse, we are the ones that have decided what to feel toward our wife, toward our children, toward our neighbor, toward our Lord. And so it is. If we're ever going to grow spiritually in life, we have to begin by saying the buck stops here. I am responsible for who I have become, and I am responsible to make changes if in fact I need to become someone else. The Lord's done His part. Now it's our turn. As we think about responsibility as it lies and develops, if you will, in this chapter of Ephesians 4 here, you remember that we pointed out last week, if we looked at the entire paragraph in Ephesians 4, it would begin in verse 17. You see, it's a paragraph that's saying by the futility of individuals' minds, they move to the very depths of immorality. First, they just don't understand the way the things they are, and then eventually they are past feelings. In other words, they can do sin and not feel guilty for doing the wrong. And then they find themselves involved in all kind of uncleanliness and lewdness. And so now we're at the very depths of immorality. And so we as men this morning studying this text, we say, how is it that a man can find himself at the depths? And that was the text that was so capably read again this morning. And that is in verse 20. And before we scan back through this again, notice that in these five verses, six times the word you or your is used. In other words, here's a man that is in the depths of immorality, and God says, it's you that have done it. It's your mind. It's your ways that have done this. And so we won't spend as much time developing this slide because we developed it pretty full in its fullness last week. But what we'll do is spend more time applying it to men. So on this slide here, let's quickly look at this. When we look in verse 20 and 21, the emphasis is on what you learn. Remember in 20 he says, but you have not so learned Christ. Why? They're in the depths of immorality. How'd you get there? You didn't learn Christ. Just yesterday, I heard a woman talking about her children and how children are different. And in the middle of that conversation, she just said, you know, you learn your children. Yeah. You learn the living. You don't learn the dead. You learn the living. How can we learn Jesus? We learn Jesus because Jesus is alive. Jesus is well. And if we have a relationship with Jesus, we're going to learn Jesus in the Scriptures, and we're going to know, we are going to know how He thinks, how He reacts, how He felt. We're going to learn whom He submitted and to what level or degree that He made that commitment in His life. Learning Christ. Verse 21 Indeed, you have heard Him and you've been taught by Him. But notice point number two, and that is we have to be changed. See, in 22, you put off your former conduct of the old man which grows corrupt. And notice as we go into 23 and 24, we can lay a parallel thought down beside that, and that is that we become a new creation. Let's try to just very quickly point this out in the Scriptures as a parallel. Imagine, if you will, a chalkboard here, and and I'll try to work here reading from your right to left. Think with me for just a minute in 22. What are we to put off? We're to put off that which grows corrupt. How does it grow corrupt? According to. According means by the means of. Corruption means to spoil, to ruin. How did a man spoil or ruin his life? It was by the means of, 23, deceitful lust. Lust is a desire to do wrong. Deceitful means we've been tricked. 
We think it's best. Satan tells us it's best. It's going to bring us happiness. It's what we want in life. It's what real men do. But yet we do it and we find out this isn't all I thought it was going to be. I've been tricked. Now my life is ruined. The very things and people that I cared for the most are not what I want them to be in my relationships with them. What's happened? Corruption according by the means of deceitful lust. But notice 23 and 24. We can become a new creation. And notice again we see the word in 24, according in the New King uh, James translation. And so we see the new man according by the means of what? God. What does God do? God is a true God of true righteousness, of true holiness. You see the parallel here? Corruption by the means of deceitful lust. A new man by the means of God. His righteousness, His holiness. But now let's develop a thought of this idea of responsibility as we go to the next slide. You'll notice that on the left side it's the same three points that we just talked about. In other words, we have to learn Christ. We are the ones responsible to make changes in our life. No one can make the changes for us. We have to renew ourselves. But something that's not being said in society today, and we need to make sure that since God says it, that we're saying it loud and clear in the church. God not only expects men to do these things that are on the left side column, God expects men to be the leaders to urge others to do these things also. In other words, when we think about the man learning Christ and living Christ in his life and in his family, the Lord doesn't leave it at that. The Lord says now, not only do I want you to learn Christ and live Christ, He says, I want you to lead others to do the same thing. And here in our text, I hope you still have your Bible open, Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Look what He says as we go into Ephesians, the fifth chapter, beginning at verse 23. Listen to how strong the parallel is and how strong the words are that He says about leadership here of the man. He says in 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife. Now what's the parallel? As Christ is head of the church. He's the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. What did He do? Gave Himself for her. So first off, as we read this part in Ephesians 5, we see that not only is the man to live the spiritual, faithful, godly, religious, Christian life, but he says, now I'm giving you a responsibility. You be head of your home. We're not talking about an iron fist. We're talking about a man that puts his shoulder up underneath the load and he bears the burden of headship and says, I will choose this day whom we will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is the direction that we're going. Now we learn from 1 Corinthians 7 that a man cannot force his wife to serve Jesus. That's not the idea here. But what we also learn is that every man must make the decision to lead his family in that direction. Is it an iron fist where a man says, I get my way, or the highway. No. Instead, this headship is so sacrificial that the man says, I don't ever get my way. I choose to lead God's way, and I would be willing to even lay down my life for my family in order for us to go in the direction of righteousness 
and holiness. I want to echo that one more time to drive it home. Headship has nothing to do with the man getting things his way. Headship is all about a man saying, I take the responsibility to submit everything in my life to the Lord and lead my family in that direction. Headship is a huge responsibility. Now, as we read on a couple more verses, we see coming out of 25, we're still in Ephesians 5, coming into 26, he says that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the Word. And now this is talking about what Christ is going to do for the church, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Let's go ahead and read 28 and 29. So husbands ought to love their own wives as they... Uh, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. So as we go back up four verses there, we think about Christ. Husbands are to be a parallel of you. Christ and the church, husbands and wives. What do you want for the church, Christ? He says, I'm looking for the day of judgment. I died on the cross so that on the day of judgment the church can be presented without spot or wrinkle. In other words, they can be forgiven of sins. They can hear the, the uh, sentencing. They can hear the judgment. Well done, now good and faithful servant. Let's go home to the Father. Husbands, what do we want in headship? The only desire in headship is to lead in such a way that when our family gathers on the day of judgment, we will answer individually, but the plea is that individually we have led our family in such a way that they will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That is the greatest success that any man could have on this earth is the saving of his own soul and leading in such an effective way that even his family has chosen to serve God. Now granted, there could be some awesome, spiritual-minded, faithful men that their family choose not to serve God because each individual has that choice. But the question is, how will the man lead? God wants the man to stand up and to be the leader in the way of spirituality in the home. Along with that, he says, his relationship is with his wife is that he cherishes her, that he nurtures her. He provides the things that she needs to grow spiritually, and he sees how valuable she is. Sometimes when we live with individuals, we tend to take for granted the things that we ought to value the most. We tend to start expecting things instead of appreciating things. It'd do well for every one of us men today to reevaluate the worth that we have for our wife and for our children and for our grandchildren. And be reminded how important it is for us to love and cherish them and to respect them and to let them know that we value them in that way. But now notice as we go down to Ephesians the 6th chapter and verse 4, Ephesians the 6th chapter and verse 4, we're still thinking about the responsibility of men. And he says, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. The King James is saying the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So again, we say here is a relationship between parents and the children. Where is the burden of responsibility? Let's look in society. Society, where's the burden of responsibility? Generally on mothers. God, where's the burden of responsibility? He says, I place it squarely on the shoulders of the fathers. 
Does that mean mothers don't have a role? Absolutely not. We know from last week's lesson how important the role of women are and how important a woman is in the home. What's the point? Someone has to feel the ultimate responsibility to say, I am the one God has said is responsible for the direction of this family. God says, I place that squarely on the shoulders of the men. You're responsible to lead your wives toward God. You're responsible to lead your children toward God. Yes, there are going to be so many others that will help, and, and there will be no one that has a greater influence on life for our children than our mothers for the average child. But husbands and fathers need to recognize the responsibility that God gives. Now, if you'll notice on the next scripture here, under you learn and you lead, not only is that true in the home, but that's true in the church as well. In Acts the 20th chapter, if you want to be turning there, Acts the 20th chapter in verse 28, Paul is speaking, we know because of verse 17, he's speaking to the elders of Ephesus. And as he's visiting with those elders, he's telling them things that are their responsibilities. We know when we read 1 Timothy, the third chapter, that be an elder in the Lord's church, that it is a man. And this man, we know from reading 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, is a man that's already proved that he is responsible in the home. He's proven to be a responsible husband and a responsible and faithful father. And so now we read what he's saying to these men in the church. And notice Acts 20 and 28, he says, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. You notice on the screen here, on one side it says, You learn and you make the changes that need to be made in your life and you renew and then you lead in this direction. Isn't that interesting that that's how he starts verse 28? You take heed to whom? Yourselves. He's talking to the elders and he says, Elders, the first place you need to take heed is to yourselves. Elders, if you're not going to learn and you're not going to make the changes in your life and you're not going to renew your relationship with God, you have no business asking others as you oversee the work of the church. So he says, you oversee yourselves, and when that's all taken care of, now you turn and you oversee the flock. What's the point? If you will, I would like to make a simple point, but to drive it home, I would like to use several illustrations and examples. You may choose to turn or not to turn to some of these, and some we'll just refer to, but if you would like to go to Exodus, the third chapter... I want to remind you the story of the children of Israel. It's on page 52 in your pew Bibles. The children of Israel have been in bondage for 400 years. They had left God. They knew more about idolatry than they did the Almighty God. And they had been slaves under harsh taskmasters to help build up the cities that Egypt wanted to be built. God decided and said in Exodus the third chapter and verse 8. Now I want you to notice, who's going to lead the children of Israel? Here's what he says in verse 8. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up from the land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, the place of Canaanites and Hittites and the Amorites and the Parasites uh, and, and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Who's going to do this? God says, I am going to lead the children of Israel out. That's interesting. God's going to lead the children of Israel. But isn't it interesting that it's in Exodus 3 
where he tells Moses, you're standing on holy ground. The burning bush is there. And if you read the rest of the chapter, he's saying, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. I'm going to give you signs. I'm going to tell you what to say. I'm going to have you lead them out. Now, wait a minute. Who's leading the children of Israel out? Is it God leading the children of Israel out, or is it Moses leading the children of Israel out? Now, let's just think about a a couple more. Judges, the sixth chapter, we have Gideon, and we have the Midianites that have surrounded. There are countless in number. There's no way that Judah can recover from this. For seven years, they've been in impression by these people. And God comes along to Gideon, and He says... I want you to save the people. Gideon says, I can't do it. I'm the least of my family. I'm of the least tribe. I can't do this. He says, I can save the people through you. Now, who's going to save the people? Is it going to be God or is it going to be Gideon? Well, Gideon does such a great job rounding up the troops. He rounds up 32,000 in Judges 6 and 7. And God says, no, no, that's too many. Because if you go and fight with 32,000, I give you the victory, you're going to think that you had the victory yourself. He says, tell everybody that's afraid to go home. 22,000 go home. Now we're down to 10,000 men. He says, take them down to the water and let them get a drink. The ones that lap out of their hand like a dog, you save them back for battle. 9,700 go down to their hands, face to the water, and they're sent home. Now only 300 are left. God wanted to make sure that they knew that it was God that gave the victory. Oh, so it's God that defeated Midian. Yes, it was God. Well, why did you have to have Gideon? Let's keep that answer open on the front burner for just a moment. Jesus Christ said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Then He ascended up into heaven after His resurrection. The church still was not established on this earth. Who stood in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost? Was it Jesus that stood to establish the church? He said in Matthew 16, I will build my church. And Peter and 12, 11 other apostles stood that day as the beginning of the church. You see the point? Do you remember Ezekiel 22 and verse 30? The Lord wanted Judah delivered from how they were about to be conquered. And he said, I looked for a man that would stand in the gap. And I did not find one. The word man there in the Hebrew is ish. It means male. He didn't say, I looked for an individual that would stand in the gap. He said, I was looking for a man that would stand in the gap. He didn't find one, and the fall of Judah was the result. Are you getting the point here? God says, I want to free Israel, but I have to find a man that will take the responsibility to lead. I want the Midianites to stop oppressing Judah. And I'll take care of the battle if I just find a man that will be courageous enough to take the responsibility to lead. Jesus says, I will establish my church, but I have to find 12 apostles that will be strong enough, faithful enough men to take the responsibility to lead. Lord, we pray. Please bless this church and help it to stay on the right path. Help us to always be a church that follows you. How is God going to answer that prayer? I don't claim to you today that I know the mind of God, and I will not say to you absolutely, I know for sure how God will answer that prayer. But from one cover to the other cover of the Bible, I want to tell you how God's going to answer that prayer. The way He has always answered prayers, and that is He's going to find men in this congregation that love Him enough that say sound of the truth. And those men can make a decision to follow God closely or they can make a decision to leave God. God never leads without a man. 
You want your family to go to heaven? God is not going to miraculously come down and lead your family to heaven. He looked for a man to stand in the gap. The man was not found and Judah was destroyed. God wanted the church at Ephesus to do better. What did He do? God sent Timothy down to work with the church and said, work with the elders there. He wanted the church at Crete to do better. What did God do? He sent Titus down and the first thing He said was, set in order the things that are lacking. Appoint elders to lead over that church. I don't know how to say it any stronger. If men do not step up to the responsibility that God has given them, God has no plan B. Period. If a man will not teach his children to serve God, God doesn't say, that's okay. Just flip back over here to Hebrews somewhere and we have plan B. If the elders do not want to lead a church in the way of righteousness, God doesn't say, that's okay. We can still keep this church on the straight and narrow. Come over here back. No. God has given men, in my opinion, the heaviest responsibility on earth. And I'm not saying the hardest. I don't want any woman to leave here saying, David said it's harder to be a man. I'm not saying that. The heaviest responsibility is upon the man when he decides to put his shoulder underneath the load. Hollywood says there's no more men like that. And so they show a picture of what they think men are. Oh, men are only strong enough to excel at work. You'll never find one that can excel at work and at home and in the church. This morning, I want to ask you, I want to beg you, men, who are you? And don't begin that answer by saying, well, here's who I'd like to be, but the home I grew up in just wasn't. No buts. Well, here's who I am, but. No buts. Responsibility. God's done His part. And now the question is, Will we step up and will we do our part? No plan B. God using men because of His goodness and His grace to be all that we can be. Tonight, we're going to come back and we're going to look at the idea of faithfulness and how misbeliefs affect our spiritual decline, and how the proper belief system affects our growth. And that'll be a sermon not just from the aspect of manhood, it'll be from the aspect of of women and men and children. But as we close this and as we extend the Lord's invitation, let's each, man or woman, let's each realize that the definition of a dysfunctional home It's simply this, where someone in the home does not carry their weight of responsibility. Wives, if you're not what you ought to be in your home right now, you have a dysfunctional home.
Men, if you're not what you ought to be in your home right now, you have a dysfunctional home. And if children aren't what they ought to be in the home right now, we have a dysfunctional home. And you know what? In a church family, we can have either a functional family that is fulfilling its purpose and we're glorifying God in everything that we're doing, or we can have a dysfunctional family that's struggling, that's at odds with each other, that the responsibilities are not being met, and therefore the glory is not going to God that He deserves. But we can talk about all of this from a family aspect, but it comes back to us individually. Who are you? Can you honestly say to yourself and to your God and to your family and to your workplace and to your church family, can you say, I'm not perfect. I'm responsible. I'll give my all in service to you. If you're not a faithful child of God, this morning's a time to... Make it right. To make changes. We've looked at those two columns there. Let's learn. Let's change. And let's renew. And if you need to do that this morning by being baptized into Christ for remission of sins, please do that this morning. Don't procrastinate. There's no reason to procrastinate. You know, we oftentimes use the expression, be a man. One of the times that that stands out to most of me in the Scriptures is when Job has been through all the losses. He's lost his health. He's lost his ten children. He's lost all of his wealth, every bit of it. He's sitting in ashes. He's sitting with balls all over his body. You name it, and he's lost it except for his faith in God. And toward the end, instead of God coming down and putting his arm around Job and saying, Poor baby, let me just visit with you and make it all better. He comes down to poor, pitiful Job, and he says, stand up like a man. And he starts quizzing Job to remind him of how awesome God is and how feeble man is and how man needs to depend upon God. I have no authority to speak to you as if I'm God, but through God's Word, can I say to every man here this morning, If you're making excuses for being irresponsible, you need to stand up like a man and just get it right. Stop the excuses and come home. If you've been a Christian but now are unfaithful, you need to repent and pray forgiveness. Whatever changes we have to make, if we're changing to become more like Christ, those sacrifices are worth it. There's not a person in this auditorium that hasn't had to bow in submission to the Lord if they are faithful to God. We're not here to point fingers this morning except to God and give Him the glory for everything that's good. We can help you come as we stand, as we sing.